Thank you, Mandy. Well, this is, since Joel gets to bring his girls into pictures every week whenever he's on stage, this is Ivy Joe. Ivy, can you say hi? This is my granddaughter, and she is dressed today, since we're modeling, that's what we do. She is dressed today in an outfit from Scotland. Joelle and I got to go to Scotland a few weeks ago, and we went there on purpose on a mission for New International, our missions agency that, we, that uh, I'm on the board of directors for. And so we got to go and see what was happening all through Scotland. And uh, right now, I want you to take a look at this video and kind of see this is Mark Michael, the regional director uh, in the UK for New International. Watch this. Good morning, guys. I'm in beautiful Edinburgh, Scotland right now, and been down here with New International, uh, the mission organ organization that I'm part of, and it's been an incredible opportunity to get to see uh, the country and how people feel and what they do in their lives, and, and just exploring the history of this country has, has been great. This is Mark Michaels. He's the chief people officer for New International. He's also the director of the UK, and uh, that includes Ireland and Scotland and England and Wales. Yeah. And, um, and so he's in charge of all the, the ministry that's happening here through New International and beyond that, uh, church planting and church organization and just spiritual development that happens here. And as we've been able to, to see what he's been doing as he's interacting with these missionaries through this this um, moment that we've had here in Scotland. It's a pretty incredible story. And Mark, why don't you kind of give us a background on what's happened here sure. in, the, in the UK? Sure, so you know, if you look back, um, the UK and specifically here in Scotland where we are, there's a great spiritual history here. You know, a history of Christianity, church doing incredible things. In fact, just over a hundred years ago, you have Scotland being pretty much almost 100% Christian, you know, and so much so that, that they chose Scotland and actually Edinburgh, Scotland, to be the place of the very first ever missionary conference. And they had the goal and they truly thought it was doable because of how strong Christianity was in all these places, that they could win the world for Christ, um, just in a matter of a few years. But just over the 100 years, there was a, um, a poll done just a few years ago uh, by large Christian organization, the largest poll that's ever been, that they'd ever done. And they determined that based on their definition of an evangelical Christian, that uh, Scotland was less than 2% Christian. Wow. God is already here, God's at work. And there are incredible leaders doing pioneering work and amazing stuff. And so what we have strived to do is to find places where God is at work and then bring Americans who feel called to Scotland or the UK or Ireland, wherever, to then to come and work alongside them. Yeah. And so that's, you know, that's the idea is to come alongside national leaders, find your place, and then as you begin to grow in your own faith and you grow in understanding the culture, uh, then to, to kind of find you know, your permanent place. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I, I love some of the things that I've heard about what I would call real discipleship. Mm -hmm things that we have gotten away from or we've forgotten in the in the states 
Um, tell me about some of those things happening. Sure. So you have some creative things, like there's a couple here in um, in Edinburgh who uh, do a game night, and they, you know, they were telling me the other day they have a lady that comes two and a half hours on the bus because she's found a place where she said it's the first time in years that she's felt safe, she's felt accepted, and and loved and so she comes down spends the night with a friend just to be able to participate in a game night mm -hmm. and so they have that relationship you know developing and um you know developing relationships in the pubs and being part of men's groups that meet and and uh, have these you know ongoing discussions uh and then those then go from those you know party type atmospheres to now he's you know, able to meet with them and and have uh deeper conversations with them yeah you, you know i think um in the United States, we've really gotten away from that. And um, the church has been more about programming and bigger events instead of focusing in on relationship. And um, relationship, I believe, is the key to the church growing stronger and deeper at the same time. And for me, that term is discipleship because it goes beyond just surface. It goes into meeting needs and it goes into knowing what's happening in someone's life yeah. and then being Jesus to them. Yeah. And so I see that happening uh, around the several couples that I've talked to this week uh, that are impacting this culture. And they don't even realize how much they're impacting this culture. But stepping back and seeing um, what's happening, I'm just blown away by it's not a lack of Jesus here. It's it's a whole new field to be able to reach people with relationship and bring them up just like Jesus did. You know, it was one-on-ones, it was small group type stuff where they're reaching a, a dozen people and just pouring into their lives. Yeah. And I, I think um, the more people know about this um, globally, uh, that church can happen like this. It doesn't happen by the poll saying it's whatever. You know, the church is dead uh, in Europe uh, because these little movements everywhere are happening with individuals. So great job, uh, Mark, over here. Uh, thanks for, for sharing um, a little bit of your story with us. And, sure. and, um, and someday maybe you want to come to Scotland yeah. or Ireland or England and maybe make an impact. Well, let me just say that invitation is open to all of you. You know, maybe you want to go to Scotland or London or Wales or Ireland and make an impact. I'm telling you, the church is not dead. You know, we tend to look at what happens in Europe and say we're 30 years behind where they are in their faith movements. And we think that the church in, in the UK is gone, but it's not. It's thriving and it's growing and it's impacting uh, everyone in that culture and they don't know what real community looks like. There's a lack of that there. But I see these young missionaries just infusing themselves into the culture and, and truly changing what's happening for Jesus. Now, I look at that and it really ties in as we start this new series on Revelation today because the churches of the UK and the churches of the United States need to hear the same message that the seven churches of Asia Minor needed to hear. 
All right, these churches in Revelation, they needed to hear this message, and so do we. Here's Revelation 1.1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Now, when we think of Revelation, we really think that it's this scary kind of stuff, right? I mean, Revelation, ooh, we can't study that. It's just too hard for me to understand, or there's too many hidden meanings, and I can never wrap my mind around all of those hidden meanings, and it freaks me out. What do you know about Revelation? Just one thing that you know about the book of Revelation, something. The rapture, okay? Yeah, that's an important one. We're going to get back to that in just a little bit. Someone else, another thing you know about Revelation? Lake of fire. Yes. Seven seals, yes. It was given to John that loved Jesus to call John the Absolutely. Given to John, who was, you know, loved by Jesus. He was he was an apostle. He was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And when you look at that and Again, some of the pictures of Revelation are a little scary, but they're not intended to be scary, right? You've got bowls of sulfur and blood. You have a beast and a dragon. You have huge locusts right there. Kind of freaks me out. You know, the dragon I'm good with, locust I'm not. Four horsemen and people eating scrolls, and we have war and famine and death and the lake of fire and, and, and these things opening up, and, and we're just not sure what to do with it. Somebody said about the book of Revelation, it just doesn't seem like a very happy book. Well, I, that's fair, right? I mean, it doesn't seem like a very happy book. But the truth is, Christ followers either obsess over it, and that's all they want to talk about and want to study. I know some people like that. Or you want to stay as far away from it as possible, because it's just too much for you to kind of wrap your mind around. Several years ago, this interest in Revelation kind of peaked with that book series that came out and then a movie that was based on the book series called, anybody know the name? Left Behind. You can still find those at Half Price Books, by the way. You can still buy them new on Amazon. But you got this whole Left Behind series, and, and, and those books have caused so many issues because... They just left a lot of questions out there. You know, like the Antichrist. Oh, how's that work? And what's that about? And who am I going? And when am I going? And, and what's going to happen to me? And, and you know what? It's really interesting. By the way, you know the word Antichrist is never used in the book of Revelation. That's a word that we made up, just in case you wondered. Kirk Cameron didn't tell us that when he directed the movie, right? But that, that's, that's the truth about it. Revelation answers the question, all right? Now, let me say what Revelation doesn't answer the question of first. It doesn't answer the question of when will Jesus come back. And it does not answer the question of how is the world going to end. We tend to want to know those things, right? But it doesn't answer those questions. It answers the question of how should Christ followers live in a messed up world. That's what it answers. Sounds way too easy, doesn't it? And you're going, there's no way it can be that easy. I mean, I've heard about Revelation my whole life. It's not that easy. It just isn't. Listen, it's not what you've made it out to be. We've turned it into this monster. And it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be encouraging. 
And it's supposed to give us strength. And it's supposed to give us some hope. Now, to understand Revelation, we've got to study the background on it. It's just part of it. The the images that are in there, because there are over 500 references to Old Testament images in in Revelation. And, And when Jesus taught, he used images all the time as he taught. Like John 10, 9. I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. Does that mean that Jesus was a literal physical gate? No. It means he's the pathway to God. All right? He's not a literal gate. He's a pathway. And so you have to understand that as you read through Revelation, that there are a lot of analogies in there that aren't meant to be, this is exactly what it is. It's meant to represent something bigger than what you see. All right? Um, Revelation 1.16. It says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. So that's one of the things that you have to try to understand. What does it mean, a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth? Well, in the ancient world, anybody that carried a sword had power. They were the authority. That's the way it worked. And so to see a sword coming out of his mouth means what? His words have power. It's not a scary image. You have to understand the image to understand what it means. The words that he is speaking have power. So sword equals power of words. The question you have to ask yourself is, whose words am I going to allow to have power over my life? Because words always have power. You know, the old phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me, is exactly opposite. Words will destroy you. And it doesn't always even matter who says them. It matters how we allow them to impact our lives, what we're going to take in to our lives. Now, maybe you had a parent that said when you were growing up, you're never going to amount to anything. Listen, that still is affecting you today, by the way. Whether you realize it or not, it is. Those words have power in our lives. Maybe it was a spouse that cheated on you and said, I don't love you anymore. Those words have power over our lives in our next relationships and how we think about ourselves and what we do in those relationships. Maybe somebody at school early on in your life said, you're not smart enough, you're not pretty enough, and you're not athletic enough. What do you think that did to your psyche growing up, to your person growing up, it destroyed you, and it's still destroying you, whether you believe that or not. Do you allow lies to get into your lives, or do you allow the truth to get into your lives? You see, you need to find the truth so your life can be okay, because words have power. Jesus' words are true. They're powerful. He said to the wind and the waves, be still, and they were still. His words have power. This Roman centurion, this guard that had authority, came to him and said, heal my servant. And Jesus said, because of your faith, I'll heal them. Let's go to your house. And the centurion said, you don't even have to come to my house. You can just say the words and my servant will be healed. And so that's what Jesus did. And the servant was healed. Words have power. And Jesus' words have real power. And don't forget what he says about you. You're valuable. You're significant. He has a plan for your life. You are loved. Don't let anybody tell you that you're not. 
Don't let anybody speak lies into your life that says you're not good enough, you're not valuable enough, you're not whatever, because you are. You are everything that God created you to be, and Jesus gives you life, and you need to hold on to that power because that's all that matters. It's all that matters. So you're looking at those those images. You also, in the book of Revelation, you have to look at the numbers that are in the book, right? Twelve times in chapter 1, we see the number seven. Seven. Numbers. Seven represents God. Twelve represents the people of God. You have the twelve. Twelve tribes of Israel. You have twelve disciples in the New Testament. When it comes to a number, we have to ask, what's its spiritual significance? I mean, what, what does it mean? What does it hold true to? The, the, the number in the Old Testament, 777, that's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's the perfect number. And then John in the book of Revelation describes another number. Anybody know what it is? 666. We all know that number, right? I mean, we just do. We know it's number of the beast. And that number for some people is so scary and so terrifying. Oh, don't let it be 666. And we, we can't let, don't, don't ever move to house 666 because it's evil. It's, it's the beast. It's, it's bad. You're going, you're missing the whole point of the number, people. 666 is less than 777. Is not as powerful as God is. He's not as good as God is. He can't hurt you like God can help you because God is more 777 than 666. It's basic math. They should teach it in elementary school, but they don't. Seven is greater than six. New math. It just doesn't work out the same. The beast is not quite God. If you take a look at some of the events that are happening in Revelation... Now, you have volcanoes, and you have earthquakes, and you have floods. It's all about the context of those. They represent more than just that one specific earthquake or flood. There's more to those. You have to look at the context, the background of that. You have creatures with multiple, multiple eyes and multiple heads and multiple wings. Just kind of strange, isn't it? Not necessarily scary, but kind of strange, And the reason that most of the creatures that we see in Revelation seem so strange is because we don't understand the political and cultural context that's happening. Now, Revelation is written specifically to these seven churches, but it's also written for us today. You still have to understand the the, the cultural context. If you're living in that day and age, and he talks about a beast coming out of the sea, and you make your living from the sea... Guess what that means for you? Your life's getting ready to go into chaos. That's what it means. That's the point. Your life is going to be hard. It's going to be turned upside down. Now, don't don't miss this. This is probably the most important point here. The key to understanding and unlocking Revelation is understanding its main character. Do you know who the main character is? Anybody? Jesus. Nobody's going to say that. Most of you didn't know that. Most of you thought it was the Antichrist, the beast, the evil stuff going on, the four horsemen. That's what we think Revelation's about, but it's not. It's all about Jesus. It's main character. He's known as the Lion of Judah, 
And then the lion becomes a lamb, and the lamb gets killed and becomes a lion again. And that lamb is Jesus. He's the one that rose from the dead. He's the one with the power. He's the one that defeats anything that's coming after you. Now, now, if you will, open to Revelation 1, and let's start in verse 9, a little bit longer passage here. I want you to bring something with you to read, a Bible, your iPad, your iPhone, something to open up to that you can underline or you can highlight. Now, the words will be on the screens. I'd rather you have something with you. Revelation's easy to find. It's the last book of the Bible, all right? Here it goes, Revelation 1, starting in verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's in prison there because of his faith. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am living. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, that's important because the churches have lost their way, right? I mean, John, he is the only surviving disciple, the only surviving apostle of the 12, and he finds himself exiled in this Roman prison called Patmos, sits on an island in the middle of the Aegean Sea, about 40 miles off the shoreline, think Alcatraz. That, that's the best way to describe this. And while he's stuck there, all because of his faith, while he's stuck there, all the rest of his spiritual family are being persecuted for their faith, persecuted and killed. And all he can think about is worshiping with them and giving them a message of hope and power. But he can't do that. Because he's stuck on this rock. He's isolated. He's alone. Now, you read that and you see where John is, and there's a huge lesson for us in that, right? Like the next time you're in the middle of a really bad place where you feel isolated and alone, where you feel like all hope is lost, you need to do what John does here. And what's he do? He worships. When was the last time when you felt isolated and alone and, and like desperate that you chose to worship? 
Or when you were in those situations, what did you do to try to get yourself out? We try all kinds of things. Most of them don't work. Most of, us leave, most of them leave us feeling more stuck and more empty than before we tried them. Why don't you try worship? That's what we should do. And as he's worshiping, he heard this voice, and he sees a vision of Jesus that cuts him to the core. And for the next 21 chapters, Jesus invites John to be part of this story. And he shows him heaven and the past and the present and the future and the battle between good and evil. And that vision was meant to wake up the church that Jesus died for. That vision was meant specifically for those seven churches, but it was also meant for this church right now, today. It's meant for us. Maybe we need to wake up because that's what he was saying to those seven churches. Wake up, take a look around you. Now, it starts with this little word again called look. Pay attention. John's writing to the seven churches And again, they need to pay attention because they've lost sight of Jesus. Just like the churches in the UK, Ireland, London, um, Scotland, lost sight of the churches and went from being almost a 100% Christian nation to being 2%. They lost sight of the power that comes from Jesus. And they focused only on their building and their, 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 their stuff and their procedures and their policy. And they left Jesus out of all of it. And that's where the collapse came in. So it starts with look. When you take your eyes off of the little things, the everyday things, the big things seem to get out of focus. For example, some of us in this church, we've been in church so long that we've become oblivious to Jesus. We don't even notice him. Maybe you grow up, anybody grow up and have a flannel board Flannel graph whenever you grew up with your Sunday school lessons, or even in school maybe. You know, Sunday school lesson, you take Jesus, he's in a blue robe with a gold sash, you know, and and you take him and you move him from here over to this board, and he magically just sticks onto the board. It just happens that way. The the flannel graph kind of move him over here. Oh, he's with these people, and now he's here with these people, and you're looking at that going, I don't know. Flannel graph Jesus, okay. Maybe you remember Jesus as hippie Jesus. That's what I called him, hippie Jesus. He had the lamb around his shoulders and the peace sign. That that was 70s hippie Jesus. Maybe you remember that. Maybe for some of you, right, you, you remember nice Jesus or meek Jesus or mild Jesus or gentle Jesus or Mr. Rogers Jesus or for some of you, precious moments Jesus. Remember him? Some of you... In this culture, you've grown up with Ricky Bobby Jesus. And if you know the name, you should be laughing because it's actually a pretty funny scene in a movie. You know, oh, baby Jesus. My, anyway, we'll, we'll let you figure that out yourself. But that's the problem. It's so easy to get so familiar with Jesus that he just becomes this little good luck charm that we carry around. He just becomes something on a flannel board that that we see occasionally. We make Jesus like us, and we forget that Jesus isn't made in our image. We're made in his image. 
And when you make Jesus in your image, you're his God. And you dictate what happens. And you set the boundaries. And you set the rules. And that's why your life isn't making sense. Because Jesus is the one that's in control, not you. We need to put him back on that throne. I think the seven churches that John is writing to are struggling with with, with this spiritual amnesia. They've lost sight of who Jesus is. They've become apathetic, just like the church in our culture. Look what happens after COVID. You see people that have a faith in Jesus and people that claim a faith in Jesus but don't really put it into action. Now, I'm not saying that the church in America has done everything right because it absolutely has not. We've destroyed ourselves many times because of the way we do things and our actions and our attitudes. But listen, Jesus is still real and Jesus is still powerful and we still need to worship Jesus. He's not our mascot. He's our savior. And it's easy to lose sight of him. But John wants us to open our eyes. He says, look, don't miss Jesus for who he is. We should get a little more than nervous when you study the Jesus of Revelation. I mean, it's, it's a valid point. This isn't Jesus in a manger. And this isn't Jesus being beaten up by soldiers. He has a flaming sword coming out of his mouth. This is Jesus of Genesis chapter 1 where he spoke the universe into existence. And friends, I'm just going to say this. You don't walk casually into his presence. He's powerful. He demands respect. Annie Dillard writes this, If you knew just how powerful this Jesus is, whose presence you walk into every week, you trade your silly church hat for a crash helmet. Ouch. I like church hats, by the way, but the point is still valid. You better be ready for some action. Charlie talked about the sword of the, 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 the spirit and the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness earlier. You better be putting that stuff on because there's a battle going on. John said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. The message is pretty simple. We better wake up. Because at some point, we're going to have to give an account of who we are and what we've done. Jesus died for all of us, and his blood covers our sin. The only question is, are we going to choose to follow Jesus and accept that forgiveness, or do we turn our back on him? Because that's our choice. The gift isn't a gift if you don't take it. It's just sitting wrapped up under the tree. You have to choose to accept that gift and take it. So where are you in your life with Jesus? Are you controlling him or is he guiding you and directing you and providing for you? Because that's what he wants to do. Question is, are you going to wake up enough to see it? I'm going to close with Revelation 21. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bird, like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. 
I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But you have to accept it. Will you pray with me? Father God, I pray for everyone in this room and everyone watching online, God, that they may wake up and see how powerful and incredible you are. God, Revelation isn't supposed to be scary to us. It's supposed to be powerful. It's supposed to give us some purpose and meaning in our lives. And God, may we not miss that. But may we stop using you as a crutch. And may we start following you as our Savior. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.